we're starting a brand new series called Grounded. Grounded. When you hear the word grounded, what comes to mind? If you're a pilot, you immediately think of a plane that is unable to fly because of mechanical issues or weather issues. It's grounded. If you're a sailor, you think of a boat that has run aground, either on shore or a sandbar, and it's no longer able to navigate the waters. It's grounded. If you are a teenager, you immediately think of being confined to home because your parents obviously overreacted to some innocent and insignificant breach of the rules, like being two hours late for curfew. You're grounded. But none of those apply to this theme of the series. We're going to use the classic definition, which, by the way, was first used in 1958, so I don't know exactly how classic that is. But the classic definition of grounded is this. It describes the person who is mature, sensible, and has a good understanding of what is really important in life. Mature, sensible, understands what is important. When it comes to our spiritual lives, it is vital that we are grounded in Jesus Christ and His Word, that we are spiritually mature, sensible, and that we understand what is really important in this Christian journey we're on. And it all begins, really, this, this grounding all begins with our heritage. Let me take you back about 3,400 years ago to the banks of the Jordan River. It has been a long 40 years. The Israelites followed their deliverer Moses out of Egyptian enslavement, crossed through the Red Sea by the power of God, and they have spent the last 40 years aimlessly wandering through this wilderness. And, and at this moment in Joshua, they are on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the promised land. Only a handful of the older folks who stand there would have been kids at the time they crossed the Red Sea and would have seen the amazing power of God at work and remembering. And they're standing there thinking, man, this is a whole lot like it was 40 years ago. The swollen, fast-rushing water of the Jordan River at flood stage seemed as impassable to them now as the Red Sea had seemed 40 years ago earlier. You see, the Jordan River at flood stage is about as wide as a football field is long. It, it speeds along at 10 miles an hour. The word Jordan means descender, and the river starts at the Sea of Galilee, and it empties into the Dead Sea, and between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, it drops in elevation a thousand feet, and so the water can come rushing pretty strong, and at flood stage, it is simply impossible. No wonder they thought it was as uncrossable as they had seen 40 years earlier on the banks of the Red Sea. Add to that fact, Moses is dead. And after all, it was Moses that held his staff out over the sea when it parted. I mean, how are they going to get across? Now, the miracle had been done by God, but they associated with the leadership of Moses, and he's dead. They were so close, so close. It was just, it was just across the river, and yet they were so far away from their destination. In a moment reminiscent of the Red Sea, God instructed Joshua, Moses' successor, to ready the people 
to cross. Now, folks, you got to understand this. Anytime God gets ready to do something amazing among his people, God gets the people ready. He doesn't just do it. He gets the people ready, okay? Let's read in Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, don't miss this. This is another one of those three-day stories where everything seems bleakest when everything seems impossible, and it's on the third day that God does the miraculous. Don't miss this. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are the Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things through you and among you. Now, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was this piece of furniture that sat in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle that had been with them all through the 40 years in the wilderness. The Ark of the Covenant was that piece of furniture that represented, it was not the presence of God, it just represented the presence of God. God is not visible to the human eye, and so God had them build this beautiful Ark of the Covenant, which whenever they saw it lead out, represented the fact that God was leading them to a new place. And here on this day, they are getting ready to cross the river, and they are to follow the Ark of the Covenant. It is as though that God is saying, you follow me. I'm going to take you where you have never been before. And then God has the people consecrate themselves. Make yourselves holy. I'm about to do amazing things. Get yourselves mentally, spiritually, physically prepared. Be holy because God is going to be at work in your midst. It it, it caused me to wonder when I was rereading this story, can God do amazing things through us if we never consecrate ourselves to God? If we don't live in a way that is holy before him, can God do amazing things among us? God always consecrated his people before doing the great things. Then, Then go on here in Joshua chapter Three verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. God never sends us where he isn't already there. When the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant step into the water, the floodwaters begin to roll back. Now, this means they're running uphill. And they ran back, they rolled back about 30 miles up to a place that many say was the site of a city called Adam. All of a sudden, you have the rest of the water flowing downhill toward the Dead Sea, and this wall of water rolls up 30 miles, and suddenly you have this dry riverbed. I don't know if God made it miraculous dry, but it, it it is dry for them to cross over. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stops in the very middle of the stream. It's being carried by four Levites on the four corners of the two poles that lift the Ark of the Covenant, and the people are to give a wide berth to it. Don't need to get any closer than a thousand yards. Because you see, it represented the presence of God, and we just dare not take that too casually. And so the whole nation crosses over, two million people, give or take, 
while the Ark of the Covenant rests in the very center of the Jordan. But now remember this. Do not forget this. Nothing happened until they stepped in the water. Nothing happened. God did nothing. If they'd have stood on the banks of the Jordan for three days, the water would have continued to roll. It wasn't until the Levites carrying the ark actually got their feet wet that, that God entered the picture and changed everything. Good lesson for us there. And let me add this thought. Sometimes life rushes at us like a swollen river at flood stage. The water is deep. The current is fast. And we stand on the banks fearfully contemplating what will happen if we enter the deluge. God's invitation is to wade right in. And so life becomes a matter of trusting God. Especially when you cannot see the outcome. Who in their right mind would step into a flooded river speeding along with swirling currents. Nobody. But God says, you follow me. And when you step in, when you cannot see the future and trust him, God will get you through. Is your home like a swollen river where things are not well? Does your child, whose life seems flooded with anger and bitterness, hold it against you Do you feel caught in the currents at work and powerless to affect change? Do you feel overwhelmed by grief and sorrow because of the loss of a loved one? Do you feel like you're drowning in a financial mess? The pressure, the pressure that sometimes life brings on us can be astounding. And God says, you trust me. When the pressure is so much that you can't feel your heart beating, when the pressure is so great that you cannot see, trust me. In the crisis moments, you just step in. I'll pave the way. Francisco Ferreras can hold his breath in a swimming pool nine minutes. That's astounding. He is a free diver. And and, and free divers are those that ride a sled to as deep as they can go. Francisco Ferreras set the record at 531 feet. To put that into perspective, a World War I submarine would have collapsed at 400 feet. When he, got, when he gets to the depth of 531 feet, his heart, because of the water pressure around him, his heart is reduced to 10 beats per minute, and the pressure is such that he cannot see. To what depths are you willing to go to trust God? when you cannot feel your heart, when you cannot see, when everything seems so overwhelming, will you step in? Because God says, you step in, and I'll take care of everything else. He'll get you through the crisis. He won't remove the crisis, but he will get you through the crisis. The Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the middle of the riverbed, and they stayed there until everyone had crossed over. Oh, folks, only when we keep the Lord in the very center of our lives all the time will the day-to-day struggles that we face someday come together and make sense. And then notice what happens next. This is the part I don't want you to miss. In Joshua chapter 4, Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from every tribe, 
And he said to them, go over before the ark of the covenant of your Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each one of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, not a pebble. This is a, this is a big rock out of the middle of the river. Put it on your shoulder. According to the number of the tribes of Israel, so 12 stones are going to come out of the river right where the ark has been to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. This was a life-changing moment in Hebrew history. They had finally arrived in the land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before this. And they set up these 12 stones. I don't know whether they set them up in a pillar or a pile or what it looked like. But the purpose was this. Years from now, when you're walking there with your grandchildren and you're strolling by the Jordan River and the kids come to this pile of 12 rocks and they say, Grandpa, why, why are these rocks stacked up like this? Then you can say, oh, child, I, I sure wish you could have been there. This was the day when the whole nation stood on the other side of the river, and when we stepped into the water following the Ark of the Covenant, the waters rolled all the way back up to the city of Adam, and we have this land, this land of promise today because of what God did here that only God could do. Don't ever forget your heritage, child. Don't ever forget. God has been about heritage since the beginning of time. And, and there's a couple of things I just want, I want to draw to your attention this morning. The first one is this. Heritage matters. We cannot afford to forget our past. President Woodrow Wilson, in a speech given at a Denver rally in 1911, said this, A nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today nor what it is trying to do. We are trying to do a futile thing if we do not know where we came from or what we have been about. The church could say the same thing. When we as God's people do not remember who we are and where we have been in the past, we cannot know who we are today or where we are headed for the future. A glance at church history is always inspiring to me. When I think of the early Christians that became lunch and supper for the hungry lions to entertain people at Rome's Circus Maximus, I am inspired to know that God calls from me sacrifice too. When I read about Martin Luther standing before the council at Worms and will not recant what he knows is the truth from God's word, even though it might cost him his life, I want to dig deeper so I can stand firm on what I know and believe. When I think of Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Warren Stone, I am grateful for what they did in this nation at a time in American history, at the turn of the, of the 18th uh, century. When we're moving, uh, well, it's actually the 19th century. We were moving into the 1800s, 19th century. America was really an unchurched nation. We, we think of our great Christian heritage, but about 90% of Americans didn't go to church at that time. It was a tough time, and the churches that were, were there were very sectarian. I mean, you just didn't walk into a church to visit, I mean, it, it, you, you kind of had to be invited. You had to be kind of checked out before you go into the church, and these guys were preachers, at that day and time, they said, there's something wrong with this picture. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you recognize the name of Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone? Raise your hand if you do. 
All right, there are a handful of us who know those names, but the rest of you who don't know their names are actually living in their heritage. As a matter of fact, they might be encouraged that you don't know their names because what they did was never about them. It was to bring the church to where the church needed to be. And and what happened was that some of their work, as well as the work of others around our country at that day and time, spurred on the great awakenings, the spiritual revival that took place in the 19th century that really did transform who we are as a nation. Thomas Campbell wrote what was called the Declaration and Address. And in this Declaration Address, he he talked about staying true to three original standards, taking the divine word alone for our rule, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and guide to lead us into all the truth, and that Jesus Christ alone is our salvation as demonstrated in the word of God. Now, those were simple statements, but they were profound What they did was they said what God wants us to be as Christians is all united together under the banner of his word. No creeds, no man-written doctrine, just simply taking what we find in the Bible and living it out. They did not claim to be the only Christians, just Christians only. They did not create a new denomination. We are not a denomination. They said no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love. And their conviction changed the frontier right here in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri. The, the, the impact what was indescribable. These great men were committed to making a difference in people's lives on the frontier while casting aside the acceptable way of doing church in an effort to bring unity to the body of Christ on the basis of New Testament teachings alone. Now, what drove them to invest and spend their lives like that? They were cutting new roads into a spiritual frontier by going back to the fundamentals. They were going back to that which grounds us in our faith. Unity, God's Word, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and love for His kingdom, the church. That's why today our churches wear only the name Christian Church or sometimes Church of Christ. It is is not to be associated with some kind of a methodology or ideology or a person or something. We just want to be aligned with Jesus Christ. They often quoted this, and it is one of those things that I still hold dear because I think no matter what name is above a church, this is the way it ought to work. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, we would probably understand it a little bit better if we'd say it like this. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, love. That came from Rupertus Meldinius, a Lutheran minister, credited writing that in a document in 1626. I don't know where he got it. But I suspect he borrowed it from somebody else because, you see, the church has always really genuinely operated that way through the ages. Now, we don't have to resurrect the 1830s. We don't have to go back to the first century. But these principles, these principles are guiding principles throughout church history. If if we just care about preserving history for the sake of history, we might as well shut the doors and go home. But if we are if we care about preserving history for the fact that we learn about Jesus Christ as we preserve who we have been, 
so that we might present him to those who are yet to come, then it matters so much. To know where we are headed, we must first know who we have been and where we have been. By the way, when you came in this morning, each family should have received a, a, a little magazine published by Christian Standard. Uh, it is a description of this heritage that I'm talking about. It has a lot more articles. As a matter of fact, some of you have read it in the last 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> but you might want to go home and read it again when somebody isn't droning in your ears, all right? So take, take that and read it, and it will fill you in a little bit on who we are and the heritage that we come, because heritage matters. And that brings me to the second thing. Heritage matters. We cannot fail to plan for the future. Now, I am, I am thrilled to death. If you were one of our IU students or our Ivy Tech students or some other students from the surrounding area that are back in Bloomington, we miss you when you're gone. You bring such life and encouragement and zeal and, and enthusiasm when you're here. You, you just make us all feel better by being here. So we're really glad to have you back where, wherever you have come from. And if this is your first time here, we hope that this will be only the first of many times that you're here because we really do value having you as a part of this congregation. But just take IU for a minute. Uh, the, the freshman class, the incoming freshman class, and you may have seen these statistics in the paper. There are 7,879 freshmen on campus this year, representing 92, all 92 Indiana counties, 47 different states, and 33 different countries from around the globe. That's just the undergraduate freshmen. That's amazing. Now, here's the thing. When you become an IU student, when you step on campus and you enroll and you start taking classes, you become a, a part of a great heritage. The heritage of the past suddenly becomes your heritage because you're a part of it. Um, there, there, you'll see scattered statues around campus. There's a picture of her, or a statue of Herman Wells uh, on a bench. Uh, Herman Wells was a transformational president at Indiana University and devoted his life to the school and made such an impact. You'll see Hoagie Carmichael, who was a great musician, composer of Stardust and other great songs. You'll see Ernie Pyle, who was a great World War II war correspondent, killed in action, covering the everyday ordinary soldier whose stories made such an impact back home, killed in 1945 while covering the war on the island of Iwo Shima just off the coast of Okinawa. As an IU student, you are now a part of that heritage. Their story is your story. But here's the more important question, if you're an incoming student. What will you do to contribute to that heritage? What, what will you leave behind that will impact students who are coming in the, in the years ahead? What memorial stones will you stack up on the banks of your life so that when others come by, they will see the direction that you have led? You see, when you become a Christian, you immediately become a part of a 2,000-year-old heritage of the church, and you immediately become a link to the future. Every, every generation is important to the next generation to come. What memorial stones as a Christian will you stack up? Out at Ivy Tech, the nursing school bears the name of it's benefactor, Lee Marchant. Lee is one of the men in our congregation who is building a heritage that will last for generations to come. He is helping to shape the lives uh, and careers of those who will help take care of us with our health issues in the years to come. You see, he is building a heritage for the future. Heritage matters. 
The ancient church was characterized by great activity. That's our heritage as Christians. The early Christians were filled with awe of, of the power of God. They gave sacrificially. They met together. They praised God. They shared what they had with one another. They continued to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They helped the poor and the needy. They suffered for their faith, and they clung to their hope of heaven in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 6 reads like this, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see that? For every generation, don't go grow weary in doing good because when you are doing the good things of the kingdom, you are building a heritage for those who are to come. Okay, I've talked a lot about heritage this morning. You're saying, yeah, what do I do with this message? Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Here's what I want you to do with this message. First thing, come back next week. <laughs> I'm serious. Come back next week. This is only the introduction to the series. I can't get very deep into the series. Just introducing how important the heritage is for us to be grounded. So, next week, we'll begin our exploration into what makes a great Christian heritage, heritage and how we as Christians need to be grounded in the faith. Second thing. I want you to pause and give thanks to God for what others have done before you to get you here. I would not be here, you would not be here, if somebody before us hadn't paved the way for us to find Jesus Christ. I didn't know this until I got into ministry myself. Now, I, I knew my great-grandfather. I was five years old when he died, so I have some vague memories of him, and I knew that he was a preacher. But I didn't realize that my great-great-grandfather had been a preacher until I got into ministry, and I, I discovered some things. My great-great-grandfather, Abner Connor, was a farmer and circuit-riding preacher in southern Indiana. During his ministry, he rode 20,000 miles on horseback, conducted revivals that would last two or three weeks, and he witnessed 5,000 people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior during his years of ministry. I don't ride horses. I don't do three-week revivals because they aren't currently effective, at least in our culture today. I don't farm on the side. I don't dress like he would have dressed. My preaching style is much different than what would have been used in the 1800s. And I'm part of a congregation far larger than my great-great-grandfather would have thought possible 150 years ago. But I'm convinced I'm convinced that I would not be standing here today. I might not even be a Christian today had it not been for his commitment to Jesus Christ and his faithfulness and the heritage that he and my ancestors passed on from generation to generation. Here's a third thing. I want you to take some time this week and make a list of the people who are different in a positive way because of you. Who have you impacted? Who's seen your pile of stones beside the river and said, ah, I know the direction to go now? And, and if you write that list and the list seems kind of small, that's a good time for some self-examination to say, why isn't my list bigger? Why haven't I made a bigger impact? Here's the second part of that list. Make a list of those who you will impact, those who you will strive to influence, and I've got a good idea. You already heard about it from Bill earlier this morning when he was doing the welcome, and that is our adopt-a-student college ministry. The, the kiosk will be out in the foyer for the next two weeks. If you 
want to make a difference, adopt a couple of the college students. Give them a home environment. Give them some place to escape to when, when things get a little bit tough on campus. Spend some time with them and give them something they won't find in a dormitory, all right? You'll be amazed how much it will help them. And you'll be even more amazed at what a blessing it is to you. Who are you going to change in the future? You see, our heritage only matters if we take it and use it to plow into the future. My grandmother Ellsworth was great for keeping a historical scrapbook of our family heritage. As a kid, I loved to look through that scrapbook, those tintype pictures of people who were long gone and just imagine who they were. As, as a matter of fact, I still like to look through those pictures because they are a part of my heritage. They, they are a little bit about who I am today and the things that I have from them. The small things that maybe they carried or they owned or they made, they would be meaningless to you, but they mean so much to me because they are a part of who I am. None of my grandchildren will bear the name Ellsworth, but I want them to know who they are. I'm going to assemble a few things for them, like sermon CDs, which they can listen to. <laughs> even now when they can't sleep at night, <laughs> because I want them to know their past. And 150 years from now, I hope and pray that some young preacher will stand up before a congregation and be able to say, I know Jesus Christ as my Savior because his great-great-grandparents in Bloomington left him a heritage that changed his life. You and I do not know what the future holds, but we have this moment. What stones are you piling up beside the river so that those who come and pass by can be told, this is the way home. God said, I'll take you where you've never been before, and we are helping plant those markers along the way. That's heritage, and heritage matters.